TheOAMNetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler. Hello, Facebook Live. I'm the executive director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. Then Chief Shelby County Public Defender A.C. Wharton was my first boss after law school a long time ago. Since then, in spite of that decision to hire me, he went on to become Shelby County Mayor and the 63rd Mayor of Memphis, Tennessee. He served in that capacity from 2009 until 2015. Now, as the lead principal of the A.C. Wharton Group, Mayor Wharton is still working closely with business and government leaders to address some of the challenges that face Memphis. Mayor Wharton, thanks for joining me. Thanks for inviting me, Josh. I really appreciate it. It's great to see you. I made you. a good decision when I hired you. So, oh, thank you very uh, much. Since that's a part of the permanent record, I want to make sure that that's clear. <laughs> and, and now it's on the permanent record. It's on the permanent record. And no one can dispute it. I like that. Right. So you've long served the public as an attorney. Before you were the public defender, you uh, were the director of Memphis Area Legal Services. What led you to that kind of law? Tell us about your childhood, your, your family. What, what set you up for that? Well, originally, let me try to uh, make this a bit brief. I had wanted to become a veterinarian. I was raised in a country town, Lebanon, 30 miles east of Nashville, over in the uh, uh, Cumberland foothills. But my high school and elementary school education had no sciences in it, no real math, anything like that. So that wasn't going to work. I went into political science, uh, finished with honors, and then into law. But what really prompted it, uh, it meaning the decision to become an attorney, was one Saturday afternoon, I won't give you the whole story, but I, I saw some police officers just brutally and mercilessly uh, beat into the ground a black man uh, who was drunk, so no question about it, staggering along. Uh, it was really sadistic humor, I guess. Uh, they kept telling the guy to, well, they had a little joke they would play that, run up in a squad car and you try to jump out of the way. Well, this guy was intoxicated, so when he jumped, he fell in the ditch. And they kept hollering for him to get out of the ditch. He couldn't get out of the ditch because he was drunk. Oh, uh, whereupon they just beat but they pulverized him. The local community uh, organized and brought in Avon Williams. Uh, those who know attorneys, he was a legendary civil rights attorney. We wanted Z. Alexander Luber, but we couldn't get him. But he sent Avon Williams. And these are Nashville lawyers. Uh, these are Nashville lawyers. And here's where I'm going on my point. I'd never seen a black attorney. Huh. Uh, so I figured that. They had to be just huge, bigger than life, maybe 10 feet tall, <laughs> weighed 350 pounds because you had to be big. So for the weeks coming up, we had all sorts of little games. We played around Lebanon there in the black community. What kind of car was he going to have? What kind of <laughs> suit was he going to have on? Because this was like an eclipse or something that didn't come around that often. and. Uh, but turned out, and here's my point, 
Zee Alexander Luby couldn't come, but he sent Avon Williams. He didn't show up in a Cadillac. He showed up in a Fairlane Ford. <laughs> he wasn't eight feet tall. He was just a tall, skinny little old guy. And the courtroom, uh, black folks had to go in the back to the little city courtroom, and the white folks would go in the front. So when Bob Jr.'s trial came up, we couldn't get in. Um, because white folks had gone in, but Avon Williams stood up and he said, Your Honor, I object to trying my client with Negroes being excluded. They can't get in. He's entitled to a trial before his peers, and it's not just white people. And I'm standing out back there, and, and, and I said, Oh, God, they're going to kill him. He's in there with all those white people, those police officers have guns. The judge is going to put him in jail. They're going to kill him. But the judge didn't hesitate at all. He said, lawyer, you're right. We're going to move this case over to the county courthouse. Something came over me because here I am. I was really young, probably weighed 66 pounds soaking <laughs> wet. And I said, wait a minute. If that little skinny black man can stand up and make things happen, maybe this little skinny black guy can do something. And it just hit me because yeah. I just, that the courage that a skinny black man, not right. one who's eight feet tall and weighing 400 pounds, but a skinny black man can make the law work, no brute force, right. no physical exertion. I said, hey, that's where I want to be. Wow, that's, uh, that's an incredible story. About how old were you, do you think? I, it's hard for me to remember because I had a job cleaning up a jewelry store, and I would go down after school uh, to McGee and Jennings Jewelry Store on the public square, I was probably 12, 13. I'm just not really certain. Wow, and, and, and the rest is history. You you did go to TSU in I Nashville. TSU with a major in political science and then Ole Miss Law School. Right. And ended up um, the public defender. Tell me about how, how did you get appointed to that? Is that was that? Well, a, I, can't, I went after I finished law school, I went to work uh, over in Washington, worked for a year or so with the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, employment, and then with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and then got a call, oddly enough, from the first director of the Legal Services Program who said, hey, I'm leaving. Why don't you come back and become director? So I came back to Memphis in 73, yeah, 73, to take over the Legal Services Program. So it was Judge George Brown, who was the director. He was leaving. He made a call. And I came back down, interviewed, and and got the job. Let, let me back up just a little bit. We may mm -hmm. have skipped over something, and I apologize mm -hmm. if I should know this, but so you went to law school at Ole Miss at the That's University correct. of Mississippi sometime mm -hmm. in the 60s. 68 to 71. That had to have been very soon after that school was integrated. That's correct. When was That's it? Correct. When was the law school integrated? Uh, I think it's around 66, 67. So how many other black people were in your class? Oh, just a handful. In, in my class, there were three of us. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, um, two guys and one one lady. 
And so you ended up um, the public defender. When, when were you appointed to that? I was appointed public defender uh, in 1974 by uh, Mayor Bill Morris. And you served until? Excuse me. Wait, wait, wait. I was legal services from 74 to 1980. Then Mayor Morris appointed me public defender in 1980. And you served there for nearly 20 years. I served there for 22 years yeah. until I was elected county mayor. So during between 1980 and 2002, mm-hmm. uh, criminal justice in America yeah. exploded. Criminal justice yes. in Tennessee and Shelby County exploded. Mm-hmm. Our jails, our prisons, uh, mm-hmm. arrest rates, everything went through the roof. Tell me about the changes you saw on the front lines oh, of that. Oh, gee. Well, we went from zero tolerance, uh, three strikes you're out, all the repressive uh, 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 phases uh, that we uh, went through, use of the electric chair with pretty much reckless abandon, um, the whole just diabolical distinction between crack cocaine and powder right. uh, cocaine. Um, so it, 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 just tons of changes uh, that occurred over that period of time. Coming in with the war on crime, of right. course, around 90, uh, 92. Uh, oddly enough, and this is a real uh, brag mark for the Shelby County Public Defender's Office, I had been pushing for what they call community corrections, but there was no law on the book. And this is an alternative to incarceration. That is correct. The, the presumption uh, at that time, was that if you commit a crime, you go to jail. I mean, that's just what it was. That's what right. jails There were from. no alternatives yeah, to you, incarceration. You, you, you committed a crime, or, hey, you go to jail. Uh, that's, that's just it. Right. Uh, you didn't think in terms of anything else. You, go, you did the crime, go to jail. That was the default right. uh, position. So we, uh, at that time, the state had a budgetary crisis because of prison overcrowding right. in court. So I kept pushing for some alternatives. Uh, we finally convinced the governor to do what we called a pilot program for community corrections. Who was the governor then? Uh, McWhorter. Ned McWhorter. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a commissioner of corrections. His name was Ernest Pellegrin, who had been a judge. And uh, I talked them into trying community corrections. Mm-hmm. We were the pilot site, by the way. Wow. Shelby County Public Defender's Office. The pilot was supposed to run two years. But, boy, it was working so well. In the first year, uh, Commissioner Pellegrin said, we need to go back to the legislature and make this permanent. Thus, it was the Shelby County Public Defender's Office that led the way. Right, right. Uh, in community corrections. Yeah, and describe community corrections a little bit for people who may not be as familiar as you and I are. It's a little more intensive supervision. That is correct. That is correct. Um, but it's community-based. People are in their homes. It is community-based. And many times, I, I can't speak for the court system now, but you would be convicted, uh, but you would be sentenced as opposed to the standard go-to-jail uh, for whatever. Uh, the judge would say, I'm sentencing you to community correction. Mm-hmm. So you were under local supervision as opposed to supervision of, of the state of Tennessee. And it allowed us to come up with all sorts of programs, work training, community service, uh, drug treatment, all of those things that would not have been possible had the 
defendant been sent off to Nashville, uh, Brush Mountain, or right, right. Pikeville this was this was criminal justice reform before it was cool. <laughs> criminal justice reform before it was cool. Uh, it started out, and then it spread across uh, spread across the state because it works. <laughs> because it works. It, well, it makes you know. I had a slogan back then: if what I'm saying doesn't pull at your heartstrings, it's going to yank at your purse strings. <laughs> I like that. In like other that. words, I know what in my heart what I'm saying is right. That ought to be enough right there. But if you don't buy that stuff, you better grab your wallet because the state was heading into a greater financial crisis because of this. we got to lock all of them up for as right. long as we can. Right. Um, and this was before the ten care deal, <laughs> right? So uh, it worked, and then it spread uh, across the uh, yeah. Across well, let's, the state. let's let's talk some more about that because you you don't get paid anymore to pay attention to things like this, but I do. Mm-hmm. The Vera Institute released a report uh, a few weeks ago about uh, prison populations in about forty states that responded to their survey, and Tennessee didn't do well at all. It uh, was near the bottom of that forty, mm-hmm. and they found that over uh, the six years between 2011 and 2015 that Tennessee's prison population grew by 10% and the spending mm-hmm. statewide on, on prisons went up by 7%. And this mm-hmm. is very unusual this day and age. Most states right. are shrinking their prison populations and they're certainly shrinking how much they spend on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's really fascinating that you tell that story and tell about the pain mm-hmm. points that were apparent right. in the 90s. Right. And here we are in 2017. What do you think stands in the way of the state – doing something to address 10% prison population growth when places like South Carolina and Florida and Texas, of all places, are shrinking, closing prisons. What, what, what do we need to do? We're going to have to look. Texas went into that big building boom, particularly right. at the behest of the private sector. Uh, there has not been a state that built its way <laughs> uh, out of their crime challenges California uh, was not able to do it. I mean, state's much wealthier than the state of Tennessee. Correct. Uh, you can't print enough money to build your way out of it. So to answer your question directly, uh, it's going to take just a, uh, an educational process for those in legislative uh, positions to understand that while this sounds good, is that you're really punishing the public uh, by way of higher taxes. There was an old saying that I recall that said the problem with flogging a fool is that by the time you raise your hand to hit him the second time, he forgot why you hit him the first time. (laughs) We're doing a lot of flogging around here, and it feels good Mm -hmm. uh, on the front end, but it's killing us on the back end fiscally. And in terms of how we are, as opposed to recycling these individuals, we're throwing them on the trash heap out there. That's right. Now, I don't know what the numbers are now, but when I was in the justice system, 99% of them are going to come back, just like a movie, uh, to a theater near you. But they're going to come back to a neighborhood right. near you. So how do we educate the public to say, look, why not bring them back in a better condition uh, they, they, then they win when they went in. So keep them out here. Keep them around the neighborhoods, community correction. Uh, there are alternatives that work. That's great. Intense supervision. Another thing that you experimented with was the Jericho Project. You and current public defender Stephen Bush uh, implemented uh, that. that. I'm so proud of that. And there's so much history on that. 
we had a perennial uh, client in the public defender's office. Uh, well, I won't give his name. Everybody knew his name. Um, had any number of problems. May have been a veteran. Uh, had a habit of going in, uh, well, it's now CK. It was a restaurant. I've forgotten what they called it. And he loved eggs. Only problem was he couldn't pay for his eggs. <laughs> so he'd go in and order three eggs. He'd eat them and then fall asleep at the table <laughs> and couldn't pay. Whereupon he was immediately arrested. Right. Over and over. Just and over. so asinine. Got in there two pennies in his pocket. I mean, what is no weapons involved, anything. So uh, I had him uh, one day, and I said, This has just got to be crazy. I said, I'm going to do what Joel and Mary, the lawyer, always do. I'm going to file some motions. Well, <laughs> I filed my motions. You know, you know how that went. Right. I, did, I, did, I tell you what, I did try something new. Because nobody was acting under the federal constitution, but back in the day, we did for the for the youngest out there. I didn't go online. <laughs> <laughs> I went upstairs and tried thumbing. I said, "Let me read the state constitution." Oddly enough, folks, law students, listen. Uh, there is a it's 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 the state constitution counterpart to the Eighth Amendment. Uh, it's it's called uh, undue rigor. You can't hmm. treat prisoners with undue rigor. And I said, wait a minute. If putting someone who's mentally ill, who hadn't hurt anybody, just wanted some eggs, if locking him in a steel cage is not undue rigor, I haven't seen it. I'm not sure. Now, at that time, there was only one case that had ever gone up under that. It was about a prisoner. They allowed him to jump out of a window in the jail, and he broke his leg. And they tried to sit it under the river. So I tried that, but it didn't go anywhere. So I remember in that small library in the public defender's office, and you know how small it was in the I, original. It's, it's still there. Office. And so I had a staff meeting, and I said, look, we got to do something. If we're going to call ourselves public defenders and advocates, there's no way in the world, in a civilized society, we can let this happen. We have got to do something. I said, now, I don't have any more money. So if you're asking, is going to be a bonus? Forget that. <laughs> I said, I just need somebody to work with me and researching some other ways of doing things. Uh, two people stuck their hands up, Stephen Bush and uh, 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 Sherry. Sherry Brown. Sherry Brown. Mm -hmm. And thus right. it got started. Both of them are still there. Uh, they're both uh, still there. Uh, it's an award to women in, uh, uh, program. It just made all the sense in the world. It is virtually impossible for someone with his or her sanity and a Ph.D. to navigate their uh, uh, their way through the criminal justice system. Right. Take someone who has a disability. How in the world? That's just that's undue rigor, right oh, exactly. there. If you ask me exactly. just to even introduce that individual. 
yeah, into and it, that situation. So it, thus, and it fits with your previous example too about heartstrings and purse strings. Jericho, Jericho right. addresses those folks who pull so hard on our heartstrings, and it also addresses the ones that cost the most. I mean, absolutely, and it's been incredibly successful at cutting down that recidivism. Oh, rate. it has, and it's amazing. I mean, sometimes, oh yeah, we've got a lot of work to do in our criminal justice system. But when Stephen and we all started going to the judges, I said, wait a minute, I'm willing to try that. Prosecutors said, I'm willing to try that because it took a tremendous burden off right. off right. them. So, so I'm, struck, I'm struck by our conversation so far, and, and I, this could go on forever and ever and ever, but I want to honor your time. And, um, and, and it strikes me, though, that we've discussed – police brutality mm-hmm. and we've discussed solutions to overcrowded prisons and to spending and recidivism that have been around for quite some time things that you were working on years ago you've got a long career behind you and you're still doing it in, mm-hmm. the, in the public sector still working for us uh, but and you earlier said you know it's about changing the, the public conversation or the public perception but we're still having conversations about police brutality black men are still getting shot unarmed mm-hmm. black men Mm-hmm. even. Uh, and our prisons in Tennessee are still in a situation that is untenable. Um, mm-hmm. We're still locking people up over and over again. Mm-hmm. Looking back after your years of public service, what what would you tell young folks uh, who are, who are going to tackle these problems? Because it doesn't – we know what works. We've just talked about it. Uh, we At its <clears throat> very core, we have to come to grips with the realization – that racism uh, is almost, it's in our DNA. Now, all racism is bad. But many individuals who do racist things are not racist. They have, they have been taught to fear black men, particularly ones who are sagging, <laughs> scat, that's you they've been they don't wake up in the morning saying if I run into a black person I'm going to kick it but I'm going to do something I'm, I just hate them right. uh-uh. that's what I mean by this we got to get away from this stop looking for the booger bear <laughs> a bad white man out there somewhere right those kind will show up and start looking for systems and finding how how our systems, our economic system, unemployment, lack of job skills, are driving folks into this big catchment called the criminal justice system, and the 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 the, the conventions that have instilled in generation after generation that you're more likely to be harmed by a black person than a white person. We just got to come to grips with that do more training with our police officers. Right. And I can say that having been, as mayor, I was head of a police department. Training, 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 being honest. Uh, when I, and I used to do some of that kind of training. You know, racism is odd for any American to say that a racist thought has never gone through my head, black or white. An old preacher said to me one time, he said, there's nothing you can do about a bird flying over your head, but you don't have to let the bird build a nest (laughs) in your hair. So the sooner we all realize that the bird of racism is going to fly over our heads 
And we have to be on guard not to let that bird land and build a nest in our hair. We got to come to grips with that. Because if you look at unemployment, uh, if you look at all of the, the negatives, if you look at the death rates, if you look at domestic violence, let's just face it, where, where is it? And then that cast a negative image. You're sending police officers into those where their society has already painted it as a negative, a bad place, and it brings out the worst advertently or inadvertently. So let's just be open and honest, have these conversations. Um, be bold enough, as you've done at Just City, call it what it is, whether it's juvenile court or wherever. Let's eternally fight to purge ourselves uh, of any form of discrimination. Uh, that's in our economy. You know, the, the justice system, is society's commode, if you will. I agree. You know, that's why we try to flush poor education, right? Mental family health, discord, right. Men- everything that we don't want, right? Let pull a handle, right? It's gone. But we're talking about people, and you can't flush people, right? Down society's commode, right? Wow, that's uh, that's quite an image. I, I, you know, this is again. Yeah, he's talking about commodes. Well, no, that. it's a, it's a great it's a great image, and, and mm. you know, the word I use often is disposable, but it's the yeah. same thing. It's just right. you're you're right. flushing people away. So let's. I think people listening might be interested to know what you're up to these days. I know uh, I don't hear much from well, you anymore, and, and maybe you like it that way. But sure. tell okay, us well, about the yeah. AC Wharton Group and what let you're working me, on, if you can. Tell you, I'll tell you what I what I have not been up to to start that way. I follow. The George W. Bush School of Post Mayoring, <laughs> that you can only have one mayor at a time. When you leave office, get the hell out of the way. Right. Um, so I wanted to take a year or so not having to avoid TV cameras and microphones wanting me to grade uh, <laughs> the current administration. I did a pretty good job of staying low profile I think for so. a year and a half. So. I'm beginning to emerge, coming out, if you will, uh, from that. Uh, I'm big on health. Um, so obviously I'm doing the work with St. Jude, um, finding cures for cancer, doing uh, fundraising for them with outside. Building over there like crazy? Uh, that is a jewel. We do not know how blessed we are to have St. Jude. It's it is the emblem. When you come across right. the bridge coming east and you see the Golden Dome, right. you say there's a healing place right. in this land of trouble. That's what that stands for. Yeah. If you take care of children, uh, you'll take care of society. And so that's what having St. Jude here projects to the world at large. Also doing some work, and this ties in with what you're doing with the ACE Awareness oh, Foundation. That's right, yeah. Uh, while I was city mayor, uh, we conducted a professional uh, uh, survey. And ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experience. Adverse Childhood mm-hmm. Experience. I'm working with the foundation there. Uh, if you look, it's amazing, uh, Josh, that we do not have more violence uh, in our city, in our county. When you look at the number of individuals who are exposed on a chronic basis and at toxic levels to violence, you know, 
think one thing that drives me crazy is when you'll see something on television, a crime has occurred, and they can't find anybody else to talk. So the TV person will put a camera in front of a, a six or seven year old. <laughs> yeah, see, see, the, see, the dude was running, and another dude ran up behind him, and he said, "Stop!" And 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 the guy didn't stop. He like this guy pulled out a pistol and he put it right to his head, and said, boom, boom, and then some blood started coming out. Then he fell down because some blood was coming out of his mouth, and he said, oh, "I'm dead, I'm dead." It's a child. That's a child. Yeah. You think they're gonna? Flush that and just walk off and it doesn't impact them? No, because when you see it two or three times, that's the way you solve disputes. Right. You get pissed off at somebody, right. That's and, life. That's where everything is. So and that that actually yeah. it's called epigenetics. It actually becomes a part of who we are. Right. If you keep breathing in coal dust, it's gonna mess up your lungs and and becomes a part of who you are. Uh, same thing with violence. So what That's, we're trying to do is making trauma-informed policing, trauma-informed medical care. Yeah. I'll tell you right now, one of my teachers used to tell me, you sow winds, you reap whirlwinds. Hmm. Every time we expose a child to violence, we're sowing winds, which will come back to haunt us as whirlwinds, Ten. Years later, sometimes tragically more when they end up in juvenile court. So that's really taken a lot of my time. I'm really excited about that. And a couple of corporate clients to pay the light. (laughs) Right, of course, of course. Because if you can't, people who aren't watching on Facebook or listening, this is a nice office you have here. Yeah, (laughs) thank you. It'll get by. But doing a lot of talk about health in terms of biking, bike Mm -hmm. lanes. Uh, working with Anthony Syracuse, who helped me back when I was city mayor to get the bike lane movement started. Um, spoke uh, some time ago to people for bikes out in Madison, Wisconsin. We'll be over in Minnesota coming up. Oh, that's exciting. So soon. Memphis is on the circuit for mm-hmm. cities that have, have become biking cities. That is correct. That's awesome. uh, but uh, the, the, my contribution to all of that, because let me tell you, I have a bike, <laughs> but... I wouldn't know even how to sit. I'd sit down backwards on it. But in, I'm going to I'm going to start. By the way, they gave me that bike. I got to start get blow the dust off of it. <laughs> but what my contribution has been is that you don't go into a neighborhood or city and say, "Guess what, folks? I have ten gallons of white paint and black asphalt bike lanes, so we'll be in vogue." <laughs> ah, that's not it. Tie it to a broader package sure. of health, safety attractiveness to recruit industry. Right. Because it's dead. So that's what we're preaching across the nation. Yeah. And I want to, I want to wrap up by talking just uh, about, about you. I mean, you are, you are so energetic just sitting here and talking about this stuff. You are as energetic as I've ever heard you. And I've yeah, known you for, insane. I've known I, you for a long time. Yeah. And we've, we've talked about some awful things. You've certainly seen some awful things. You've shared some of that with, with mm-hmm. us. What keeps you Grounded, both physically, and you've talked. We talked earlier about you working out, and and spiritually and emotionally. How how have you managed to piece together this difficult work for so long and still be so comfortable in your own skin and so energetic about these problems? Fleetwood Mac, <laughs> don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Don't if you think about tomorrow. There are two basic tenets to my personal philosophy. One is that whatever I'm doing on this planet, whatever office I'm holding, 
It's not really mine. This planet is not my planet. You're holding it in trust. The example I give is you check into a hotel room, you doggone right. You paid for that hotel room that night. But that doesn't give you the right <laughs> to smash the big screen, kick out the windows. But you're just a trustee. You've got it one night. So everything I do, I know that I don't, the, the mayor's office was not my office. I just, that's why I was so easy to adjust. Right. I didn't go off in the corner and cry and hide. And, uh, but knowing that we all have responsibility to be good stewards uh, of this city, this town, this universe, or whatever, and that nothing you can do about yesterday, it's gone. But if you just keep my, what can I do for tomorrow? If I didn't think that way, I would have packed it up, been on the golf course every day, <laughs> maybe done a thorough and went back in the hills <laughs> right. somewhere. Right. But no, you're right. Uh, I exercise like I'm training for Ironman or something, <laughs> which I'm not. Because uh, why I want to feel good every day. Um, and it's just thinking about tomorrow, right. tomorrow, tomorrow. And then I'm just trying to get this place to be a better place That's for other folks. I'll close it on this. When I was getting ready to make the decision on bike lanes, as you know, that's just that little less than a mile strip on Madison. And you would have thought I was passing a law that said everybody had to ride bikes, get rid of your car. <laughs> I remember that. But when Anthony and a delegation of students came to see me, they said, Mr. Mayor, we've supported you. We always will. And whatever decision you make, we're still going to support you. But we ask you one thing. As you make this decision, try to see the world through our eyes also, hmm. not merely your eyes. So succinctly put is that I keep going because I see the world not through my eyes but through the eyes of my grandchildren. Well, that is a really, really great word and a, and a great a great place to end. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mayor A.C. Wharton, for joining us on The Permanent Record. Uh, thanks to Carrie Hayes for helping set up this interview. As usual, thanks to Gil Worth of the OAM Network pr for providing first-class podcast support. There's no better podcast network in Memphis than the OAM Network. You can check out a video of this recording at uh, theoamnetwork.com slash live. Special thanks to Jeff Hewlett for She Got Gone, our theme music that you heard at the beginning and at the end of the show. He plays with me and Leah. They have a new album out. You can check it out on Spotify or SoundCloud and look for their live performances. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Please learn more about Just City at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating. Leave us a review. It helps us build a good audience for really great storytelling from people like former Mayor A.C. Wharton. Thank you again. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. The preceding is an OM production. For more information, go to theoamnetwork.com. 
Let Ohm help you get the word out on your service, product, or endeavor. Email info at theoamnetwork.com and ask about our 2017 sponsorship packages.